my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is a California and innovation editor at Sokolo Public Square. He writes the syndicated Connecting California column, which appears weekly in 30 media outlets across California. He also serves as a professor of practice at Arizona State University and is co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy. He was previously a reporter for the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Baltimore Sun. Give a very warm welcome to Joe Matthews. Um, thanks for being here in this, in this uh, new space for Zocalo. Um, and thanks to my colleagues from Zocalo. Um, great to be with you. Um, let me introduce both of our, our guests here. Um, uh, Deborah Fowles is a linguist and writer, holds a PhD in theoretical linguistics, and is the author of two previous books. Um, they're the co-authors here of, um, of Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America. Um, it's also, you're on the list, the, the bestseller list now, but also the subject of a coming HBO documentary, I think, sometime. Yeah. Um, um, she's written for the Atlantic, National Geographic, Slate, New York Times, Washington Monthly, has worked at the Pew Research Center, Oxygen Media, and Georgetown University. Uh, she and her husband have two sons and four grandchildren. Uh, uh, James Fallows has been a national correspondent for the Atlantic for more than 35 years, reporting from China, Japan, Southeast Asia, Europe, across the U.S. He's the author of 11 previous books, and his work has appeared in many other magazines and public radio commentaries. He has won a National Book Award, National Magazine Award, and for two years, he was President Jimmy Carter's chief speechwriter. That guy was president, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that guy was president, and he deregulated brewing. He created the craft brew okay. revolution. We're going to get. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll get to. We're going to get to that. Um, really, uh, uh, that's a serious policy question. But um, um, first one, I, a question, and, and I want to start with Deb. And you know, um, just to frame the evening, in 1960, um, John Steinbeck, who was Californian, and his poodle Charlie. Uh, traveled for 10,000 miles around America and especially made camper called Rocinante, which was the name of Don Quixote's horse. Um, and in the book, Travels with Charlie in Search of America, sort of different travel book, um, uh, Steinbeck complained that in America we value virtue but do not discuss it. The honest bookkeeper, the faithful wife, the earnest scholar get little of our attention compared to the embezzler, the, the tramp, and the cheat. Okay. So tonight, let's give a little, you know, to the virtue, um, you know, and, and what's going right out there in America. Um, you know, you, you've been all around. Um, and Deb, to you first, you know, where have you seen sort of ideas, innovations, new things that sort of point to a, you know, a, a country that's changing, that's, that's improving? When we first, the first city we went to on this journey, and we, we covered about, we probably went to about 50 cities, and we spent lots and lots of time in about half those cities, towns. Um, when we first went to our first city, which was Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there was a gee whiz factor. Gee whiz, look what they're doing with all these schools. Gee whiz, look what these libraries are doing. Gee whiz, look at this river walk that they're making. And after about the fifth town, we stopped saying gee whiz because everybody, <laughs> this is an inside joke. You, you can want explain to just the explain, we'll so just the inside get this out, out of the way So the inside joke is here. you can prepare yourself for the next few minutes to hear everybody at all times, always, et cetera, from Deb. I'll be saying most of the time, more often than not, <laughs> it's likely the case. So, yeah. so just, that's the framework. Everybody, all of these towns were doing their versions of, of creative and interesting things. And by the time we were, say, in Greenville, South Carolina, half a dozen towns later, it, we were, this looks like, this is interesting in a way that um, Holland, Michigan was, but it's a little bit different because it's much more, it has a Greenville twist to it. So the answer is yes, they're doing everything everywhere in, in creative <laughs> senses. So, so, so many things are happening across the U.S. So, so if, if, if that's happening, if, if, if our, in the, end, the, the, title, the question that I is, are small towns reinventing America? I mean, what are, are there a few specific ideas that really separated either one of you about 
that, that are coming out of smaller cities, you know, smaller towns. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of illustrations of things that genuinely surprised me. So back when I was a kid growing up in the Inland Empire in Redlands, where you have spent time too, and Deb has spent time since I first took you there long ago, um, almost long, 50, long, ago. long ago. So um, when I was a kid, the whole idea of trade school and vocational education was entirely déclassé. You know, I, I took wood shop and metal shop, and I was in future farmers, but that wasn't a sort of respectable part of, of education. And the revolution in career technical education and in community colleges, I, I had no idea of. And so these places, just give you one illustration in. Camden County, Georgia, which is coastal Georgia, just north of, of Jacksonville on, on the, the Georgia coast. They have this school called Camden County High School where it's like 5,000 kids there, and everybody takes a normal academic track, and then everybody, all the students, um, male and female of all races and backgrounds, they have to go to one of five career academies, and they come out of there being certified as a welder or being certified as a brick mason, or being certified in robotics repair, or the entire county's um, car fleet is maintained by the high school students. And so the way in which uh, you have all this experimentation, in, in, especially in the South, in high schools to train people for these skilled trade jobs, that was interesting to me. And uh, I guess, um, well, I, I will stop with that for a moment. Just a reinvention of schools and, and employment. So if we could stick with schools, <laughs> schools for a yeah, minute. Yeah. yeah it, so that was the high schools. And going down to the beginning of school, we saw things um, that were very place-specific. For example, in Greenville, South Carolina, which has, has big major tech industries, BMW, <coughs> Michelin, GE are there, and, and a whole lot of others. There was um, engagement between the industry and the, the schools, the public school system. The, the industries were in, intent on educating the children from a very early age in, in STEM classes because they wanted these kids to grow up to be full-fledged, well-educated uh, employees, not only good people, and it was the right thing to do. So the favorite, I would say my favorite school, uh, that I visited was the A.J. Wittenberg Elementary School of Engineering in Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> and these kids, a pre-K through grade four, had their entire curriculum infused with all of these STEM ideas. Um, and the volunteers from, from the, on the day I was there, I think they were, they were the ones from uh, GE, were teaching all about um, alternate sources of electricity, of energy and how light bulbs work. And then they were teaching how, how wicked witches fly and uh, <laughs> the physics of flight. Um, so the second step of that in Greenville, which is so interesting, was that uh, the industry came to the school system and they were having discussions again about these kids are nailing it. You know, they're really getting very fluent in, in all of the STEM subjects. But we need to make sure that they're well-rounded. We want them to be good communicators, good collaborators, good debaters, good writers. So by, by junior high, they put the A into STEM and made it STEAM, A for the arts, and we're teaching all of these soft skills uh, to, again, it was the right thing to do, but for well-rounded kids and great employees base. That's fascinating. I want to get into more details and different categories of kind of ideas and images to change, but just to step back a second to talk about more overall picture, um, I, I want to ask you a question about my uncle Jerry, um, who um, uh, was actually born in Redlands, um, but um, my mom's uh, younger brother, but grew up and grew up here, um, Southern California, born, raised, spent the first half of his adult life here. He um, went to Hawthorne High School. You know, um, and and but then had a really had a tough time with it in his life. You know, in, in family and in work, um, and then and just basically got leveled, flat leveled by the early '90s recession. So um, you know, um, we were the Okies, you know, of Redlands. Um, you guys were a little bit the more midwestern. We, we were, you know, post World <laughs> War II. My my dad, the Navy sent my dad to San Diego was. Uh, from Philadelphia, he thought, well, when I got out of the Navy, this is where I'm coming, and he did. So in 1993, um, Uncle Jerry um, returned to Okima, Oklahoma, mm. um, not in Guymon, Oklahoma, <laughs> where you went in the Panhandle, but in Eastern Oklahoma, almost Arkansas. Um, and 
uh, the, the very town that his grandparents had left, uh, my great-grandparents had left during the Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we thought he was nuts, you know? We still think he's nuts. Um, but, you know, you talk to him and you go back and visit and he loves it. You know, he, you know, yes, he doesn't make as much money, but he, you know, he, he also, his expenses are less. He runs a roadhouse bar called 62 on US 62. If you go, watch out for the pet tarantula. And, um, and, and he has, you know, he, he, has, he has a bigger piece of land than he could ever done here. He has animals, he makes some other money by fixing people's farm equipment and cars. Um, and he thinks he's, he's like got it all over us who stayed here in, in, in Southern California. And then I guess my question is, is he right? <laughs> Are, is, are, are, the, are, the, are there sort of advantages to being in this, that Okima has fewer than 4,000 people, you know, are, are there advantages to being in the small place that, um, that you know, that, that these smaller towns or smaller cities start with? A lot of people think there are. So uh, we were talking earlier, Joe spent part of his upbringing in China when your parents were correspondents there. We lived in China a lot. And one of the things that Deb and I used to say about China is that everything is simultaneously true there. It's wonderful and it's horrible. You know, anything you say is true someplace in China. Something like that is true in the US, and, and which I, I use to set this up that it is true that people will keep coming to LA and San Francisco and DC and New York because there are things that these centers can do. But we were really struck by how many people like your Uncle Jerry there were who thought that the overall balance for them was better in Fresno or better in Redlands or better in Duluth or better in Columbus, Ohio, partly because of real estate. Here's the shocking thing for people in LA. There are like 10 cities in the US where real estate destroys your life and every place else it's cheap. It just is just, it's, it's, and it's really just remarkable what that does. If you think you can get a really nice house for $200,000 and it just, that changes how you start a business and, and how you can spend your time and all that. So, I, I, so it usually, um, I'm thinking of people in Duluth and Columbus and in, and in Burlington and Sioux Falls. Which Columbus? Uh, Columbus, Ohio, yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. Columbus, <laughs> the, the dream of people in Columbus, Ohio, is you will never have to say which Columbus, like Pittsburgh or Seattle. That will never happen because there are too many other Columbuses, but that's, uh, that, that is their dream. Um, that the, usually there was something that gave them a reason to go to those places. You know, that they went to college there or their uncle, or they were from, their family was from there in the Dust Bowl or some reason to go back. But there was, we, we saw signs of this, of a reverse migration. And one, another interesting thing about these towns, so we were in towns from a size of 1,400 people, Ajo, Arizona, to uh, Columbus, Ohio, Pittsburgh, uh, big cities and a lot in between, 25,000, 65,000. Not every, I won't say every town, but many towns, <laughs> you heard the same thing, which is, this is a big, small town. And what people meant in, in towns of all those sizes was that it was big enough that there was a lot of opportunity there, and there was a lot going on there. It was small enough so that if you went to that town, you could have an impact on how people lived their lives or how to improve that town, feeling like you, you you had uh, you could get traction and make things happen in a, in a big small town. Let me um, ask you, Deb, about um, you guys cover covered a lot of ground in, in your writing about about these smaller places um, and so many different categories of you know sort of ideas and innovations and experiments. A lot of experiments that you you saw. Um, and I, you know, in the book, you actually have, there's a line about um, a successful city has a river walk, whether or not there's a river. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but is there, in, in the sort of the physical layout of a town, the buildings and things, are there things that, you know, that you, that you see in a town that is working, is trying, is making progress, that, you know, there, there's some commonalities between them, the, the smaller places? Yeah, I think that, that towns that seem uh, like they're thriving in one way or another have, have open public spaces, I'm going to say. And it is, it is often surprisingly a river walk, but sometimes it's a lot of pop-up parks, or sometimes it's, it's the downtown Main Street that will have um, restaurants that are, are open and available on the sidewalk during the summer. So 
you get this sense of, of mixing and mingling with people, seeing who your neighbors are, seeing uh, the, the old people on the soft part of the Riverwalk Trail, and the young kids on their bikes, and moms or dads pushing strollers. And um, so I, th I think it's that sense of, of having opportunity to run into and see face to face and have contact with and talk to people in, in your town. You know, there's a place we saw this in real time happening in, in Allentown, PA. I don't know if, if any of you have been there. You know, it is famous in an unfortunate way for the Billy Joel song of the, they're closing the mills down, even though that was in Bethlehem, PA. Uh, but, and they, they, the chairman of the, of the city council was saying their town was cursed because Billy Joel couldn't find a rhyme for Bethlehem. So he had to, <laughs> had to make it about, about Allentown. Uh, and and the, the economy there actually is not that bad. They have a variety of, of sort of industries that are keeping them going. But the downtown was all tattoo parlors and pawn shops and all that. But while we were there, they had this really radical movement to sort of to use the, the bones of the downtown to attract businesses and have a new uh, event center. And we followed this guy who who was a, a, an innovator. His father had been the chairman of Mack Truck, whose factory was in Allentown. This guy uh, become a, had become a tech entrepreneur, and he moved his factory from out in the suburban office park right downtown to Allentown because he said his new employees wanted to live there. They wanted to you know, be able to, to walk to their, their work. And so you could see this happening in real time in Allentown. Uh, you're uh, going to talk about the mayor? No, I was going <laughs> to say that, that his name was Pelletier. Yeah. And when he announced that he was moving his headquarters into the downtown, he said within a couple of days he had a couple dozen job applicants yeah. saying, please, can I join your company? Because I want to be in, a, in a, a company that is located in the downtown, just for that same kind of walkability, livability sense. And, and, and one yeah. more thing on Allentown. Joe, will, in his journalism life, will understand this. We talk about maybe a 1,000 people in this book and you know, many dozens of cities and lots of companies. And we live in fear that they're going to go bad. You know, where if we say, oh, yeah, this, this. And so we've been in touch with most of these people. Most of the companies are still doing well. They're expanding. The mayor of Allentown, uh, Ed Pulaski, was reelected to a fourth term last November while under federal indictment uh, for influence peddling. He has unfortunately now been convicted on multiple counts. But he was still popular in town. So he is somebody who's, somebody who's had, an, he's the sort of the exception proving the real rule. There, there's no, there, there's, in, your, in your account, there's no argument that uh, a clean uh, political environment is essential, right? That, is, that a fa is that a factor? I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't catch that if it was, it was in there. It seemed to be more things like if you, you know, that there was actually, that there was actually the opposite, that there was this, uh, the, the, public and the pri not worrying too much about what is public and what is private but the public and private doing things together that might be a little bit new that might be a little different there's a lot of public private partnership in some of these better examples right where oh, you oh yeah where people are trying things and you know you could see how that might not be kosher but you get a big change you get a big you get a big lots of industry you get a corporate headquarters yep. into downtown you get you get sort of interesting new housing or interesting new uh, pro, you know, you know, programs to support refugees and immigrants. Yeah. Uh, you know, all sorts of things. Is that basically uh, right? Uh, yes, um, well put. And and, <laughs> and and here's another illustration of an experimental thing in Holland, Michigan, which was originally settled, as you would guess, by Dutch people. And this is That's giant. That's kind of near Grand Rapids. Yes, yes. it's, it's that, just yeah. uh, west yeah. from Grand Rapids, right on right on the lake. And the problem for Holland, Michigan, which still has a very strong manufacturing base, is they get like 10 feet of snow a year, or some enormous uh, amount of snow. And this was a problem for their downtown. So one of their homegrown industrialists put up a quarter of a million dollars himself to finance half of the cost of taking the waste heat from the municipal power plant and running the water, that cooling water in plastic pipes under all the streets and sidewalks of the downtown to melt the snow. And so that was like 15 years ago. And he put up half, the city put up the other half, public private. And so now there's no snow. And in Holland, Michigan, this has been a, a big key and, to a and downtown the, And revival. the name of that, the last name of the industrialist is <laughs> yeah. Prince, right? Yes. And, yes. And, he, and his daughter is famous as? Betsy DeVos. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a, to say it's a conservative town. <laughs> yeah. But with that, that yes. change. Uh, I, want, 
there's a lot in, I mean, maybe it's because you're writers, yeah. but there's a lot in uh, of what you say about the towns that do well are able to come up with a sort of uh, a compelling story, uh, a story that, that makes enough sense that everyone kind of knows it in the place. Um, and you're, you're the linguist here, Deb. Um, um, you know, there's almost, a, you, you actually talk about language um, and the language people use to describe. What did, what did, you, what did you see, was there innovation in language? And, and what did you see in terms of how you got, what, what was it about the stories that kind of worked for towns and allowed them to try new things and kind of break the mold? Uh, well, there are a couple questions in here, and I, yeah. I'll talk about the language part, um, and then Jim can, you can do the n narrative <laughs> of the town. Um, it, it's, it's, I, I li we listened really hard to what people said, and found, I would say, overall two things. One is that there are, there are, n there is a national language. Obviously, it's English, but sayings that people everywhere will use. For example, it was, again, it was at first in Sioux Falls, which is, you know, the heart of the Midwest, really stand-up people. And a few times people would say, well, let me be honest with you, or I have to be really honest about this. I'm thinking, honest, you know, you're from Sioux Falls, of course you're going to be honest. I'll say, why do you need to qualify that? And then I, I think where this comes from is really uh, from the punditry of the national media. And I'm sorry to wreck your every Sunday morning now when you turn on these shows, but the number of times that, that you will hear uh, anybody on any talk show, either radio or TV, starting out with, well, honestly, or well, I have to be honest, or let me be honest, or I'll be completely candid about this. It's become a kind of nation, national uh, framer of what you're going to say that means absolutely nothing <laughs> now. Um, on the other hand, there were, listening to these conversations, very strong regionalisms that popped up either uh, geographically or with the spirit of the town. Um, for example, uh, if, if, and so reading over our notes at night, you know, these certain words would pop up, like in Sioux Falls of, it's safe, why do you like your town? It's safe, it's an, e it's an easy place to be, it's a safe place to be. Um, it's, a, it's a place of good values. We're nice to each other. I love Sioux Falls. They have this giant sign that says that. And it's part, wouldn't you say, of the narrative of how people, it's, the, it's kind of the wallpaper of how, the narrative of the town. So, so I'm curious, I, I had never been to Sioux Falls before we went, had, who many people have been to Sioux Falls? I mean, it's a really, in, so why were you in Sioux Falls? <laughs> Political journalism, <laughs> dumb <laughs> political journalism. <laughs> and so to me, that the fact that I had never been there and that I wasn't entirely confident five years ago the difference between Sioux Falls and Sioux City, which now to me is like uh, the Angels and the Dodgers or something. You, you Cities would, in Iowa, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So they're on the same <laughs> river, but they're, you know, 100 miles apart or, or so. It's just the... I think that was so just dramatic to us of all the stuff that was going on there, which I mentioned just because I think that the the almost unavoidable tick of the national media is to present most of the non-coastal America as just a grid or a placemat for established political narratives or, you know, do they like Trump, do they not like Trump, but they're not sort of real dimensional people. And just the the dimensionality of all these places was really, you're about to correct me. No, no, no. It's <laughs> yeah. like the whip dog syndrome. <laughs> so I, I know that look. She will, I'll hear about this later on. So How much time did the two of you spend together in one plane during all so this? We, we flew for about 500 hours over these five years. So that was only like, you know, 1% of the time of the actual reporting, but it was... Uh, it was an enjoyable was time together, right? Can I ask this, answer this another way? Yeah. Okay, so um, there's this question. I'm going to call it the second question, which is yeah. what they call it in the book, which um, is particular town by town. And it, it really reflects either um, a, a core value or a preoccupation of a particular town. When we were in Greenville, so you meet someone at a gathering like this. Yes. Hello, you know, what's your name? South Carolina, the Piedmont. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. Next question is this second question. In Greenville, where do you go to church? And when we first heard that, I thought, 
this is kind of a little bit too personal, but it, let me go on. So, I, is anyone here from St. Louis? Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> stick my neck out and say, what is the second question for St. Louis? Yes. yes. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Thank you very much. Okay. Where'd you go to high school? Uh, in, in Washington, D.C., of course, it's where do you work or who do you work for. In New York, same thing, but maybe where do you live. In, um, in uh, Atlanta, Seattle, a couple places like that is, is where you, how'd you get, you know, where are you really from? Where did you grow up? Because there are so many people who are from other places. In L.A., I don't know if this is true, but people tell me, it's, how'd you get here? Well, I took the uh, 10 to the 405, <laughs> and it goes on from there. Um, two other interesting versions, three interesting versions of that. In, in, in the big island of Hawaii and in Alaska, you never say where you're from, because people in Alaska have these stories of, you know, how they got to Alaska. They were running away from something, and you don't want to know what it is. And in the big island of Hawaii, it's a... Witness protection site. Yes, <laughs> right. One more. One more, okay, one more. In, in New Orleans... Oh, welcome to my life. Yeah. <laughs> in New Orleans, you've got two versions of the same thing. Who's your mama? Or how's your mama in them? Because you know who your daddy is by your last name, but who's your mama? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Let me. Let me. Um, Just a digression, to the, the but it's whole, true. No, no, it's real. This, this important. Important in that sort of local context, local patriotism. I want to ask about um, assets. One thing, in looking at your work, it there's the importance of sort of big assets. The research university is so is so tied to the. And if you get a growth, even a branch campus, to you know, and you went to a lot of places that actually had fallen on hard yeah. times and were coming back, right? So research university is a big part of that. You see assets in a big healthcare facilities, yeah. um, uh, you know, really good community college, yeah. um, uh, regional airport sometimes <laughs> that's uh, pretty good yeah. or unusually good for yeah. a place. Those are big advantages. I mean, the research university is so important that you guys get to Bend, Oregon, and you can't believe that they're doing so well without a research exactly. university there. Um, <laughs> so what is it about... What is about what is the alchemy there? Yeah. What is the interaction between these, these these those kinds of assets that make the towns with them better? I and mean, we see it too. I mean, yeah. La Jolla, Irvine, Riverside got the UC, yeah. and San Bernardino didn't. Did and not, you can yeah. tell the difference. You know, what is what is the alchemy of that? What's going on there? So we actually had a chapter in there about La Jolla, and we figured we just can't have La Jolla as one of, <laughs> one of the places we're writing about. But, you know, that was sort of willed into existence to have UCSD there and everything that, 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 that came from it. So, Because 50 years ago, it was just a bunch of old, boring Navy retirees, it, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, now it's this center of all sorts of things, which was a public-private partnership back in, the, in the, the 50s and 60s. But we decided it would um, invite... Um, invite criticism to have La Jolla as one of our towns, so we will just keep that among ourselves. <laughs> so I, I think that they, the, we, felt, we felt bad including a research university as one of the assets that, that towns should have because you can't really do much about it. It's like having a port or being on a river or being on a mountain. Even though we talk about the story of San Bernardino and Riverside, and Riverside, you know, one of the many reasons that it has uh, a differential path than San Bernardino is, is that it got the uh, got UCR, but by contrast, and I'll get to, to your, your question of how it all fits together, community colleges, that's, that's something that any community can have, and we were really impressed. You know, in Central Oregon, it's, um, it's what, Central Oregon Community College is, is, uh, is, has taken the place of a research university and is the thing that is sort of the underpinning of a lot of their medical tech and the, and the health insurance, uh, the health industry and the aviation industry, aerospace industry they have in, in Central Oregon. And to um, the, the, basically the poorer the place we went, the more ambitious and, and creative was their community college. And we have a long chapter there on East Mississippi Community College, which is the poster child for what you could do in a lot of places. The short version is the, the place we went to Mississippi, their, their industries 20 years ago were a factory making toilet seat covers, a factory making low-end blue jeans, 
and a quarry that made the headstones for the Pentagon. And the toilet seat factory was closing, the blue jean factory closed, and they lost the Pentagon contract. So there's all kinds of like structures and walls built of spare headstones in, in, in this place. But now they, they've attracted through various public partner, private ways. They have the most modern steel factory in North America there, and they have a, a helicopter factory. And they have this community college that trains these people who were unemployed, who were in prisons, who were on welfare, uh, for these, these really high-wage industrial jobs. And so we saw lots of places where community colleges were doing that connective role. And just in general, it was a sense of pooled assets of a place, of people who thought, I care about this place. I'm not just living here because it's nice right now. I want this place to be good in 15 years. A city government that felt that the ways in which research universities can spawn, uh, can they attract a different population and spawn new businesses, community colleges, and just all of this, um, th this uh, combination of things, which it's easy to observe when it works, and I guess by pointing out where it works, we're just hoping to find some ways to, to, for other people who would like to follow it. I want to ask about another asset. This is the, um, this is the intervention part of the um, <laughs> conversation. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually fairly familiar with with your previous books in the Fowl's Loop, but I have never, I'm not sure I've read many books that have more beer in them. <laughs> um, you, I mean, you guys are hitting like brew pubs everywhere. Yeah. You have an obsession with the brew pub. I don't understand how you're flying this plane, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you, you gotta do it in the right sequence. You know, the plane and then so, the beer. So you always go to the brew pub. You have a thing about the brew pub. The brew pub has some magic quality. It's able to turn around a town, you know, bring it together, you know, defend this proposition. Is, is, there, is, is this real or is this just an excuse to so, try a lot of beers? So, Deb, would you like... No, no, this is yours. This is yours. <laughs> so let me first tell the modern history of beers. Um, back in the 1800s, because there was no refrigeration, beer had to be a local industry. And every town had a brewery in the U.S. And that was, you know, was part of... And Jim Cook, founder of Sam Adams, Deb's college classmate who provides beer for her college reunions, his great-great-grandparents came to Ohio in the, you know, the mid-1800s as brewers. And they were part of this sort of, you know, uh, spreading this, this, uh, this wave across the country. Then came Prohibition. And after Prohibition, um, the breweries, the, the, the way the, the beer industry reconstituted itself was as huge, uh, concentrated um, mega breweries. There were only about 80 breweries in the entire United States by the mid-1970s when Jimmy Carter, may his name be praised, deregulated <laughs> brewing and, and made it possible for home brewers to experiment with what became the modern craft industry. And there now are about 6,000 breweries in the United States, up from 80. So criticize Jimmy Carter if you want. But it, and this is, it's a real thing. It employs hundreds of thousands of people. Um, it has been a sort of a, a, uh, a, a linchpin of localism in other ways too, of local food, local markets, local identity, et cetera. And in many places, we were, we were just in Duluth, uh, Minnesota a couple weeks ago, looking back at Bent Paddle Brewery there, which is now very successful, where they went into a really bad part of Duluth with these ruined steel mills. Duluth, Minnesota. Duluth, Minnesota, right? Minnesota. yes, not Duluth, Georgia. Uh, <laughs> and is there a Duluth here? I don't know. But I don't know. Is this I should Duluth, know. This is Duluth, Minnesota. <laughs> and and they, they, um, because breweries need a lot of land for cheap, they usually go into bad neighborhoods, and they attract people there in the evening. And so they have a, a role of uh, being a sort of virtuous cycle starter. Also, I like beer. So that's <laughs> so that, that, that is the that is the story. Um, so now we're in a in uh, in a state. You're from you're from Ohio. It's your home state, California. We're in a state um, where uh, you know, and I hope I get this right. Professor Pastor will correct me um, in the front row. Uh, ha where half of all children in California have at least one immigrant parent, and um, is California who's somewhat sensitive, given the we're on the business end of this business from the Trump administration on this subject. Um, you know, there are moments in reading your accounts of where you go that make me want to scream at the dissidents. You go to Dodge City, Kansas, in southwestern Kansas, this very conservative place where everyone voted for Trump, right? And, and, um, 
And yet, you know, and politicians are the place when they run, they, they, they are anti-government. But in their actual behavior, they are unbelievably welcoming. You go into the schools and show these, these schools doing all these very progressive things to, to welcome include immigrants in this majority minority school district. You know, um, um, you take the mayor, people who, you know, you meet an you a, a, a important city official who is, whose family um, is still, seems to be, I think you're saying in the book, mostly undocumented. Not, they yeah, don't, he still personally have, is here on a DACA <laughs> waiver while running the right, city. Right, while running the city. <laughs> Dodge City, Kansas. You know, don't they see the connection thing? I mean, the, the, you know, it's throughout in many of these towns, it's, the, the, it's a welcoming that seems to be so crucial to innovation and progress, and yet, what is going on there? There are many people in this room <laughs> who are expert on immigration and have varying <laughs> views on, on immigration. I'll tell you my view and, and what we saw. So my view is from having, so 38 years ago, was it that long? In 1980, I spent about three or four months for the Atlantic traveling around the country looking at the immigrants of that era. Haitians, Vietnamese, other people who were in Houston, they were in Arkansas, they were in Fresno, they were Hmong, and so saying, how are these, these immigrants being assimilated? And the argument I made then, back before the Simpson-Mazzoli bill and all that, was that through American history, immigration had always been disruptive, whether it was the Germans or the Irish or the Italians or whoever it was, it's always disruptive. But the, the, the American story was that people in the first generation was disruptive. By the third generation, they're all talking about whoever the new immigrants are, saying that they're never going to be assimilated the way like we Vietnamese um, were. And I was saying that process was going on. That's what we saw almost every place, that the more there were immigrants present in a town, the less nervous anybody was about it. And so the, the dissonance was that national politics is this separate thing. It's like, it's like English soccer riots, where it's not connected to your life. But once you, once you know if somebody's either for Trump or for Hillary, then you either love them or hate them, but it doesn't affect how you actually live. Um, even though you vote for people who are going to change how many people in your town live. Did you, I mean, you, you were going around in these years when, um, you know, hillbilly elegy was, was written about, and we've and and we've seen very clearly this sort of this you know white backlash. The <coughs> J.D. Vance line: you know, "There's no group of Americans more pessimistic than working-class whites." He wrote, "Well, over half of blacks, Latinos, and college-educated whites expect their children will fare better economically than they have." Among working-class whites, only 44% share that expectation. Did you feel and see your, this this so white backlash? Can I horn on this for a second? So, there's one kind of question we never asked people, which is who they were for in national politics. Because if you asked them that, there was no escape. It was just like turning on the cable talk show. And so it was never interesting. So we never asked that. The other thing we never asked was this, are your children going to do better or worse? Because I don't think most people think that way. I mean, I think that younger people are basically more optimistic. Older people become grumpier. And, and, and there's in, I have an article in the current issue of The Atlantic that says that um, over the last, you know, in modern times, the last 30 or 40 years, most Americans have thought that the country is in terrible shape and that their communities and they personally are actually doing okay. You know, the latest Pew survey, survey says something like 80% of Americans think their own life is actually okay, and even though the country is falling apart. And about two-thirds think their communities are getting better. And so people didn't like it when they lost coal jobs, et cetera, but, but the idea of a seething cauldron of hatred was not what we're describing. Okay, but when you, okay, but going back to Dodge City, okay, you know, this, this, this town um, passed a series of, uh, of bonds yeah. um, for schools, and it, quite proudly of itself, because it takes two-thirds, right? Uh, well, the yeah. school bond section yeah. doesn't take quite two-thirds, <laughs> different supermajority, and then, and big two-thirds votes for, for public transportation, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, our, our electorate is different, it's older and wider than our people, right? Yeah. Um, but Dodge City, Kansas did the same darn yeah. thing, right? I mean, they passed a you know yeah. big local tax yeah. to fund and and bond big bond to fund their schools. It's white voters, 
passing for non-white kids yeah. in Dodge City, Kansas. So what, what, what is, I mean, that's political. Like, that makes a connection. That sees a connection to the future that, again, doesn't yeah. square with that, with the, with the so, rhetoric so, we live among. So, so I will, this will be um, my last horn in comment yeah. here. So what this, obviously there is a disconnect. What we're describing is a country that still is functional and rational and more or less compromise minded on the level where people have their direct experience they're basing it on. You know, these are kids I know, I think our, our, our uh, city's um, future depends on them. It is, it is a problem that national politics no longer works that way. And I will, ex I mean, national politics doesn't work that way and, and it has become just as polarized as you can imagine. So we are not, we're not denying either that there's the contradiction nor that there's this big problem in national politics. We're simply saying when it's worth being aware of the remaining functionality so as to find some way to give that more leverage, to have the good parts bubble up rather than the poisonous parts seep down. Because that, that's, that's the struggle we're in now, whether the bubbling up or the seeping down prevails. Um, well, let me ask about local democracy. Yeah. You know, another, you know, a couple centuries ago, guy, French guy, went around to Tocqueville and, and talked about, you know, municipal institutions can, can constitute the strength of free nations after seeing Americans at work. Town meetings are to liberty what primary schools are to science. They bring it within the people's reach. They teach men how to use and how to enjoy it. Um, you know, you see these statistics in, around the country where participation in local elections or maybe solving problems with your neighbors in decline, even though we have high turnout presidential. Did you see that sort of withering of local democracy? Did you, an, an engagement, or did you see something different? I would say that we saw Yes, participatory mm -hmm. democracy. Um, here's a story of Charleston, West Virginia, a very troubled town, opioid center. Um, the, like in every other, just as in every other town, we saw the public library was a strong civic place. It was the institution that filled in the gaps when things went wrong, as far as education for preschoolers or adult literacy, as far as technology, if you didn't, people didn't have computers, didn't know how to use computers, or didn't have Wi-Fi, as far as being a civic and social center. Um, we happened to be there in 2014. On election on day. On an election day, when there was um, a levy for the library, to support the library, which was really in, ba in bad shape. They were, they were losing employees and they were barely open. And people were out there waving those things, you know, vote for the library levy. So I was in the library on the day that, uh, of that election, in the morning, standing at the <coughs> checkout desk, and this guy comes in. He was, he was exactly what you would think someone from, from mm. the outskirts of Charleston, West Virginia looked like. Uh, big work boots, overalls, a plaid shirt, huge beard, white <laughs> fluffy hair. He came marching up the steps of the library and said, I just came in to tell you that I voted for the bond levy for, to support the library today. And, and then he turned around and went out. It was, it was just such a strong statement of that this guy was willing to put his money on the line to support that institution because he knew how important it was for everybody in that town. And, and this was not unusual. We saw this, this kind and, and of... And it passed. And it passed. Yeah. And it passed. It passed really well. And now, actually, I just heard from uh, some of our friends in, in Charleston that they're building a new library. I don't know if I told you that. But it really passed. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it was the same election when the last Democrat was driven out of the West Virginia congressional delegation. So, again, that was the sort of national, local... Divide. So, just uh, we're going to go to audience questions here very shortly, but I, I want to ask you know, I was looking at census figures, divide rural and non rural Americans. I mean, the household incomes are about the same, cost of living is lower in rural. Um, rural people, Americans, are more likely to be employed, they're more likely to own their house, they're less likely to be poor, um, they're less likely to have internet access, but you know, the way things are going, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Um, um, entirely. Um, you know, um, they might be less li likely to have cable TV or neighbors that are near them. But, but you know, um, 
So where does this narrative come from that we're living with, that, that, you know, that, that, that we've forgotten, that these people are left behind? I mean, there's you know, so much you know, narrative book of this notion yeah. that the rural places have been left behind. The, the, the option, the, the account you give of, is of these smaller cities and rural places, even you know, by economy and education and technology, even more connected to the world. I mean, the successful ones are deeply connected to places around the world. Where does this narrative come from? I guess my, my short version of a long answer would be there are, of course, genuine enormous problems and inequalities in the country. There, the opioid disaster has disproportionately affected a lot of these areas. Mm -hmm. We went to a lot of places where really tiny towns have not been able to hang on. Just the quickest illustration of that, we used to fly over South Dakota, um, east to west, over the, what had been the railroad lines, and the cities in South Dakota were laid out 130 years ago at 10-mile intervals, because that was how the farms were set up then, and probably three out of four of those cities have, have gone away now. There's now only a city every, every 30 or 40 miles. So l rural, there are lots of rural strains, but I think the idea of the Hieronymus Bosch hellscape uh, of, of non-coastal America is partly driven by, after the surprise of the last election, people have fanned out and asked people the most destructive question, which is, do you hate Hillary? Do you like Trump? Are you unhappy? And then you'll just get people saying they're unhappy. But if you ask them about their lives, it's a different, more 3D picture, I think. My question is a little bit two parts. It, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but of your 10 and a half <laughs> success points, one of them wasn't the newspaper or the local news organization, mm -hmm. but you, you focused on yeah. that area. So the two parts are, you know, what's making that survivable? How, are, how is local communication happening? And then to my girlfriend Gail's, we've exchanged conversations yeah. about the Denver Post, without local advertising, yeah. you know, what, what's funding? There, there aren't Bezos's there. And also how is the local, you know, how does the local brew pub, you know, advertise? Is it Yelp or, so two parts, yeah. how, is, how is news getting yeah. disseminated? And then, you know, what's happening in local advertising? So, so this is a fundamental issue. If I had given more thought to my signs of civic success, I would have put local journalism on there. Indirectly, I was saying that in terms of the local story and local patriots and all that. I guess we came across, we came across a number of exceptional successes of local journalism like Seven Days in Vermont, which is, is really, you know, it's this fat, uh, former alt-weekly is now a very you know, successful newspaper of Vermont, but generally the pressures on all of our business are especially intense on local journalism. The shortest version of my solution is that, um, is a sort of Bezos-connected uh, answer, that in the original Gilded Age, the plutocrats of that era realized they had to shore up the universities and the museums and social work and all the rest. I think the plutocrats of this era could make an enormous difference, real bang for the buck, shoring up local journalism having national endowment for local journalism, of having sort of Peace Corps type programs. But yes, this really matters and it needs outside help. Welcome and hello. Um, my first name is Tom and my last name is Roth and my middle name is Clement. <laughs> now with all of that information, I wanted to ask both of you this question. Let's pretend that you are faced with a choice. Uh-oh. And your choice is of the schools, or the cities, the towns that you visited on this, this journey of yours, you were told you must pick one <coughs> that you would live in. Which one would that be and why? Dad, My what name is Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can have different answers. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Oh, seriously, you're serious. Um, yeah, okay. Um, okay. I would choose Greenville, South Carolina, um, which is tough because I'm not a southerner, I'm not a southern woman either, although strong. Um, it, it, is, uh, it is a town where... Um, it, it's a town that's working in a, in a unified vision where people turn out, and, and it's a big enough town that there are lots of different pieces, the arts, education, uh, recreation, um, civic things, 
a newspaper. So there's kind of something for everybody, and it's it's probably the, a town that is farthest down the the track of of renovation and development compared with the other towns we've seen. So it's a it's an actually really beautiful place um, where you can have a nice life. Uh, this is it, it, this kind of a dopey answer, <laughs> possibly, but um, I. I Aside from the politics of the town in the national sense, um, that's where I would choose. I have a, a, an unfair weasel answer, which is having grown up in Southern California, I really don't like cold. Otherwise, Duluth, Minnesota, I love, and Burlington, Vermont, I love. Now, those, are, those are two places that I really think are great, but they are too cold for me. And so I'll actually have an answer that comports with the argument in our book, which is that I am from Redlands, California, and I actually love Redlands. And we, we, um, uh, if, we had, if we had to go one place, um, I might agitate for Redlands. It is a place imprinted on my mind. It has a university, it has advanced technology. It's not far from Los Angeles. It right, has a great airport. And it was sort of, they have a great brew pub at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dodge City in Kansas figured, figured prominently in the discussion tonight, and Joe talked about what's going on with the, the dissonance there. Yeah. And then you talked about the, uh, the great experiment, which was uh, going on in Dodge City, where they're actually passing bonds, yeah. okay? Now, the inquiry is, uh, did they find religion in that uh, taxes, uh, you can purchase civilization, <laughs> with taxation because everything we know about Kansas, yeah. the Brownback experience has been a, a miserable failure. So was it an object lesson because of Brownback being the governor there and driving the state into the ground? And, and that was the force that, that led them to pass the local tax uh, increase because their, their funding for their local schools was being cut so much by, by the Brownback administration. So that's the, gov that's the governor yes. of Kansas. Yeah, sorry, the, go yeah, the governor yeah. of Kansas who had a radically tax-cutting and spending-cutting uh, program when he came in, what, four years ago, six years ago, which by any estimate other than his has been a catastrophe. You know, that, that it just, uh, and, and the Republican legislature of, of Kansas is moving against him. But this was a sign, you know, in, in Dodge City, it wouldn't mean they would vote for Hillary Clinton, but it meant that they were, uh, they, they were resisting, they thought that Sam Brownback was doing bad things to their, their state. We heard that in Wichita as well, home base of the, the Koch brothers. They wouldn't vote for Brownback again? Uh, that he, the, everybody, there was a prayerful, he was rumored to be ambassador to some place. And I think every newspaper in Kansas said, please God, let it be so. You know, they, they're just trying to get him out of the state. <laughs> this is Jason E.C. Wright. I actually grew up in Indianapolis, so uh -huh. that's part of the reason I came out yeah. tonight. So my question has a slight preface. Growing up in the Midwest, mm. the absence of the things that are prevalent in coastal cities like Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, things of that nature, um, it wasn't like, a, oh, readily available, this is a real thing. It was, oh, I wonder what this would be like mm. as you know, you gaze out at, I don't know, 500 miles of flatland in any direction, <laughs> right? And so it informed my imagination. Yeah. And I, I sometimes argue um, in a positive way with uh, colleagues of mine in Los Angeles that grew up here that I believe that my imagination may have benefited from wow. the lack of things as opposed to growing up yeah. in a coastal city where you almost get to take yeah. it for granted, right? Oh. And so I'm wondering if you found that yeah. in other cities with other people. You, you uh, found pressure. your soulmate. You found it with me. Yes, I 100% agree with you from growing up in Ohio. I had an epiphany at age 10 that was so vivid in my mind. I woke up one morning and I thought, I know what's wrong with my life. I was meant to live in California. <laughs> and here I was stuck in Ohio. It, but it's exactly the sentiment that, so then I found Jim and it, you know, it all worked out. That was exactly the sentiment that I had too. I think people from the Midwest, you meet them everywhere because you want to, it's a wonderful place to grow up with terrific grounding in a sense, but you, you need to see farther than you, those 500 miles of flatland, just imagine what's there. I completely agree. 
Yeah. And, and we, we didn't spend a lot of time in Indianapolis, but we've heard about all the stuff that's happening there now. And certainly Columbus, Ohio would be sort of the most comparable place we were, which is really a happening place. And that's a place where we could go to, except you don't want to go back to Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Ilka Moskos. And thank you for a very fascinating presentation. And I'm looking forward to reading your book. Maybe my question, or one of the questions, will be answered in the book. Uh, it sounded very optimistic. And, you know, everybody is doing well. Having driven with my husband um, probably more than half a dozen times from Santa Monica to Evanston, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, we went off the highway and drove through these small towns that were not just dying, but had died already, boarded up downtowns, maybe a shopping center on the outside. So if you could comment yeah. on that, I would appreciate that. So, so and, and as you know, your, your husband, uh, Charles, was a great mentor to, to me and a great example to the world and a great instructor Thank of, of the world. So I there probably is an academic here who, who can correct me if this is wrong, but my, I think it's roughly true to say that since the Civil War, in every 10-year census, most counties in the U.S. have lost population. You know, there's been a long-term concentration of population in the U.S., and so really small places. It's been a long pattern of, of you know, settlements of 1,000 people or 500 people. Most of them do not make it. So we're looking at places where, and some, we saw some very small places were Eastport, Maine, and Ajo, Arizona, but mainly we were, there is a kind of critical mass factor of having 10,000 people or 5,000 people, and our contention is a lot of those were finding some way to, to use their location and their attractiveness to people and all the rest and their, their local potentials to, to make a go of it. But the history of America has been of really small settlements um, drying up, and so you would, you would see that. Hi, I'm Emily Gable-Luddy, and I'm a local elected official. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> so I, I wonder what your thoughts were on initiating a sister city program between the cities of the coast and the cities of the Midwest. And that's my question. As our Ohio representative, what do you say? I, I say people in Ohio would love to have a sister city in California, <laughs> for one. <Yeah>. But <laughs> um, actually, you know, as you can tell, Jim and I believe in this mission of, of spreading connectedness uh, and believe in the optimism of the stories that we found. One, one of the things we'd really like to do is help figure out how people in Greenville can meet people in Fresno and realize that they're doing exactly the same thing in their kind of tech startups. Or the people in, uh, you know, Wisconsin are, are similar to those in Oklahoma in the kinds of schools that they're building or what the libraries are doing. So I think there are many answers to how you get that connectedness among people and, and you know, build the positive mm -hmm. narrative out of that. This is a wonderful one to just witness what it's like to live in these different places and, and meet people in different places, you know, the better America and all that. I think that's one way, and, it, and it's a very strong idea. And, and here, here are two quick answers to add on that. One is, the next thing Deb and I want to do when we grow up is, is actually work on making all these connections between people around the country who are trying to do similar things and don't know about it. So that's the next thing we're turning our mind to. Uh, the other thing I want to say is there was a wonderful illustration of this from the Washington Post a year or two ago. I think there was somebody, one of the reporters, who did a scientific study to find what was the worst city in America, the place where that was most pessimistic and you know, least worst health indicators, and he moved there. And he wrote stories for the Post, and the first stories were, this place is horrible, it's a hellhole. And about a year and a half later, he said, this is great, I love it here, you know, we're, we're gonna stay. Do you recall that series? So, so I think- Which city was it? It was someplace in, it was in southern Minnesota, I think. But it was like <laughs> the worst city in the US, and they made him go there, and after a year and a half, he decided to stay. <laughs> so. My name's Ryan McDonald. Um, I believe it was the Allentown example you mentioned where people were interested in having a like walkable downtown, being able to walk to work. Um, I'm curious if that was one of the commonalities you found in cities that were succeeding and in the ones that did pursue it. 
you know, to what extent was it perceived to be a, uh, you know, a virtue of having a walkable downtown as opposed to <coughs> bigger ideas about sustainability and countering climate change? I think both of those things. And, and it, it was just observed by employers that, that younger people wanted to have a walkable lifestyle. And part of the reason they wanted to have a walkable lifestyle was for sustainability and, and, and family, uh, family values and all the rest. And there was some, it's happening a lot of places being, and in Allentown, they also have a concept of walkable manufacturing. They have this old giant Mack truck works there, which is now um, you know, derelict. And they're, they're deciding to use that. They're viewing this as like a strategic natural resource for, for their town because they want to build residences around this workshop so that people can start up businesses there and walk to their manufacturing jobs. So go figure. And the businesses are, have, yeah. are flocking yes. there and they're thriving now. I, we, we get don't news actually, releases yeah. every week about them. But yeah. I don't know if, how, if the housing has filled yeah. in. It's in an oddly residential neighborhood, though, yeah. so it, yeah. it's like it will work. One, yeah. well, I can't help but add, though, one thing where you want walkable. One thing that you figure <laughs> out in your book is um, you want the cars in there, too, at least a few, because the pedestrian mall always oh. fails. Uh, you yeah. know, like Fulton Mall up yeah. in Fresno, which they just had to tear out and put yeah. in. The pedestrian mall doesn't work. Uh, you want walkable. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, and, so and Burlington, <laughs> Burlington yeah. makes it work, and, and Charlottesville, where we were recently, they have. So there's a, it's it's a wide tapestry of American okay, experiences, right, which you can read about in this fine book. <laughs> Before we close, I'd like to thank Gensler for hosting us in their beautiful yeah. space this evening. Also, That's like to thank great. all of you for joining us, and please stick around for the reception. Grab a drink with us. We also have Skylight Books here, selling copies of James and Deborah Fowles' new book, Hundred Thousand Our Towns. 100,000 mile journey into the heart of America. Finally, a big final round of applause for Joe Matthews, yeah. Deborah Fowles, and James Fowles. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Great audience. Yeah.